Hello. Good morning. So glad that you're here at Cape Bible Chapel with us. My name is James. Hey, since you're here, we're all here together, why don't we study the Bible? That'll be fun. Join me if you would. I don't care how you get there. You have a hardback, a paperback, a phone, a tablet, however you have the Word of God with you. Let's meet together there in Luke chapter 2. We're going to read verses 8 to 21 today. Now, that's a pretty big chunk. So let me tell you up front, we're going to walk through that. We're going to focus a lot of our time on just two verses in that section. The outline there in your bulletin indicates that we're still working on this message of Christmas in October. So today we're going to try and really dig in to what God is saying through Luke about verses 10 and 11. And these are verses that you know. These are the good news of great joy because of Jesus' verses. We're aware of those. But I mentioned last week, sometimes we're so familiar with the Christmas story that, that we can't really get familiar with it. We've heard it so many times, and we think we've got it all figured out, but we end up knowing what it says, and we may not really think about what it means and how we're supposed to apply it in our lives. So this is an incredible opportunity, actually, to talk about Christmas in October, because here we can distance ourselves from some of the warm fuzzies that we get at Christmas time, you know, because those things can influence our understanding of this passage. Because the Christmas story is all about Jesus and how we respond to God becoming a man, coming as this little baby in the manger. Our response addresses our worldview, how we view God and his plan. And those important concepts can get lost sometimes. You know, amidst all the shopping and decorating and cooking and eating and gift wrapping and unwrapping, and and we get caught up in that. So celebrating the Christmas holiday is wonderful, but taking this time, a couple months ahead of time, might help us really focus on the actual meaning of the story. So it's good to celebrate Christmas in October with you without all the warm fuzzies getting in the way. Do you know what I'm talking about when I say the warm fuzzies? Or is that just an expression that I use? Because my kids bust me on stuff like that all the time. I'll say something that I I understand, but they say, oh, that's dated. Nobody uses that. I said the other day I thought something was really cool, and I said that was the bomb. My kids said, no, no. Sorry, Dad, nobody says that anymore. So I'm trying to learn, you know. But but the warm fuzzies I think we get, right? That's when you're sitting there in your favorite chair at Christmas time, and there's there's a warm fire going You're basking in the glow of the soft lights from the tree. and There's Christmas music playing in the background. You're looking at your historically incorrect nativity set. If you don't get that reference, listen to the message online from last week. And and, and you're there and you're drinking some eggnog and you feel so warm and fuzzy, right? We get that. We understand. It's comfortable. It's easy to go there. And then not focus on what the true meaning of Christmas is. It's simple enough for adults to fall into that trap. It's really easy for kids. One of my dearest friends told me a story years ago about a conversation he had with his daughter at Christmas time. This is when she was young. She's 17 now. This is like 12 years ago. And, and her dad went up to her at the beginning of December, and he said, Kendall, do you know what special day is coming up? And she got so excited. She said, yes, it's Christmas. And so he asked a follow-up question. He said, do you know why it's special? you know what we celebrate at Christmas, why it's so important? And she kind of shrugged her shoulders. She wasn't really sure. 
So my buddy was going to give her a little hint, and so he asked some questions, and he explained, and he said, you know, at Christmas, we celebrate someone's birthday. It's somebody who's special and loving, and they've come to rescue us, and they bring peace, and they bring justice. Do you know who I might be talking about, whose birthday it is? And she was getting more and more enthusiastic, and she said, I think I know. Is it Dora the Explorer? I don't know if Dora's still a big deal today or not, but 12 years ago, she was the bomb. No, we're we're not going to celebrate Dora's birthday today or any time in this series, but we are going to take a closer look at the Christmas story together here in October. And you can see on your outline, what we're going to do is kind of a quick review of what's happened in the story up to this point. Then we're going to read the passage and get an overview of what's going on in verses 8 to 21. And then, like I said, we're going to circle back and spend a good bit of time talking about what good news of great joy because of Jesus means. And so I'm going to finish by making this point that that if we understand that, it should lead us to adopting a particular worldview. And so we'll look at some other worldview options that are available and see why they don't lead to great joy. So we've been walking through this book together, the Gospel of Luke, and we arrived last week at the incredible birth of Jesus Christ. And so up to that point in time, we can see that history had actually been anticipating that event for a long time. From the very first sin, from the very first promise of a Savior back in Genesis chapter 3, for the next few thousand years, people were waiting. They're waiting for this Savior. They're waiting for a Redeemer. And so along the path of history, God gave folks in the Old Testament, these prophecies who were promises that the Savior was coming. He was going to be Emmanuel. He was going to be God with us. And he'd be born of a virgin in this little town of Bethlehem. And we switched our focus to what Luke is teaching. And we saw that God sent the angel Gabriel to appear before Zacharias and to make him a promise. He and his wife, Elizabeth, experienced a promise that was beyond hope because they were old, and she was barren. But God told them they're going to have a child. And that child is going to be the one that the Scripture is prophesying of that's going to prepare the way for the Lord. Then we see that God has Gabriel go to this tiny little town called Nazareth and reveal to a a young teenage girl named Mary that she'd found favor with the Lord, and she was going to be the one to carry Jesus Christ. And we're approaching the end of Mary's pregnancy in this incredible act of God's sovereignty. Caesar Augustus sends out a decree. He needs to take a census. And so God uses this secular event that was as worldly as you get. It was politically and financially motivated. He does that to fulfill the prophecy that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. So Joseph gets up and he goes to the city of David, Bethlehem, because he's of the Davidic line. And he takes Mary, because they're betrothed, and she is with child. And the city of David is packed, because lots of people are arriving for this census. So Mary and Joseph end up sharing somebody's family room, because the guest room at that house was already occupied. And that's the place where the Savior of the world is born, and then wrapped in cloths, and placed in the manger. And we said last week, the takeaway of the Christmas story up to that point is not 
what kind of house Jesus was born in. It's that God himself humbled himself and came down to the earth to be with us, to get involved. God became a person and put on flesh. He was Emmanuel, and he came to be like us. Remember, we said he came to remove our ability to say, well, God doesn't understand me because he came as a person. He was like us. But he also came to be not like us because he's God. So Jesus lived on this earth without sin for the purpose of making the way for us to be like him. So then when we profess faith in Christ, we actually begin that process of becoming sanctified, of becoming more and more like Jesus. That's a review of what we've covered so far in the Gospel of Luke. Now let's look at an overview of this passage today. We're going to start by reading verses 8 to 14 of Luke chapter 2, and this is right after Mary gives birth to Jesus. Luke shares, In that same region, there were some shepherds. They were staying out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you, here it is, good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among men with whom he's pleased. Okay, that's probably not the first time you've heard that, right? We hear this story every Christmas, but but don't check out on me. Stick with me on this and let's walk through and see what's going on. So this scene takes place near Bethlehem. And we know this happened right after Jesus was placed in the manger. We're not exactly sure how long, but it's like minutes or hours. It's not days. Because the angel says, today in the city of David, Jesus has been born. And God picks this group of shepherds to be the first outside witnesses of this incredible event. And I'm positive this is both intentional and pretty unusual. Because a group of shepherds would be an unlikely audience for this kind of message. I don't know if you've ever seen these surveys. Every time I see them, I'm kind of surprised and fascinated. It's the survey where they go out and ask people all across the country, what are the most trusted professions and what are the least trusted professions? And, and, and on the most trusted side, doctors and nurses always make that list and teachers make that list. And what's kind of fascinating to me is sometimes pastors and ministers make that list. But then it's kind of odd to me because you look and sometimes pastors and ministers make the least trusted list. And I know reasons why that would happen, but it's, it's kind of sad to me. But then joining the ministers on the least trusted list are some people that you, I guarantee, know. Lawyers. Lawyers always make this list. Lawyers have it hard. And mechanics are always on that list. Now, I don't know. Maybe I'm blessed. I know some honest lawyers and mechanics. But my point is, if they took a poll like this back when God entered the world in the flesh, then shepherds would have been on this side, on the least trusted list. 
because they had a bad reputation. It's an historical fact. Shepherds had such a poor reputation that their testimony was inadmissible in court. Shepherds and women back in that time. They couldn't give witness in court. And this, to me, is kind of an undercurrent. It's one of the cool things that we see in studying the Gospel of Luke. We've seen it already. We'll continue to see for sure how God has this huge heart for the lowly, the folks who would have been considered outcasts. So Jesus comes to this earth humbly, and then God has these angels show up to some humble shepherds who wouldn't have even been considered credible witnesses back in the day. Compare this with the fact that in Luke 24, we'll see this, the first witnesses to the reality that Jesus rose from the dead were who? Some women at the tomb. All through this book, God includes these people who were often excluded. Luke notices that. Because the announcement of Christ's birth is supposed to be good news for who? For all the people, even those with bad reputations. And so this angel of the Lord shows up to be with the shepherds, and and the text says they were terribly frightened. And wouldn't you be? Nobody ever came out to see the shepherds. They didn't come out in the field to hang out with them. And now all of a sudden, in the middle of the night, there's an angel there. And the glory of the Lord shone in this bright light. And and the shepherds were scared. Luke uses two Greek words there, the word megas and the word phobeo where we get our English words mega and phobia. They had a mega phobia. (laughs) They were fearful with great fear. They were scared. And the angel said, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid because this is a message of good news, of great joy for all the people, not just the rich and the powerful people, but the foreigner and the outcast and the depressed and the disabled and the shepherds for all of us personally. Verse 11 says we can receive the good news of a Savior being born. It's for you and for me. And this good news the angel is referring to is the Greek word euangelizomai, which indicates the gospel message spoken in its verbal form. That gospel, that proclamation that we can't save ourselves. So God sent his Son to save us. Anyone who professes faith in Jesus Christ, that message will produce great joy. Then Luke makes use of three titles for Jesus that aren't combined anywhere else in Scripture. This is the only place you see all three of these at once. He says the angel indicates that this little baby, born of a virgin, is our Savior, he's Christ, and he's the Lord. And all three of those titles are significant. Each one explains just a slightly different aspect, a role that God became incarnate to accomplish. First, we see Jesus as our Savior because we need a Savior. We need someone to rescue us. And Jesus satisfies that role by going to the cross and dying for our sin. I love the way the girl in the baptism video shed it. He conquers sin and death by rising again. Jesus saves us from the wages of sin when we can't possibly save ourselves. Then Jesus is the Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a title that means Messiah or anointed one. Jesus was the Messiah because he was chosen from the line of David. 
And this is the title that references the fact that Jesus will deliver his people. This is the thing that God's people had been waiting and waiting for. And finally, Luke says Jesus is the Lord. He's the king over everything, over all nations, over all genders, over all people, not just God's chosen people. He's the sovereign ruler over all things. He's the head of the church, the body of Christ. So the angel comes and delivers this amazing message to the shepherds, and then he drops just a little hint. He suggests, hey, you guys can go see this. The sign you want to be looking for is a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger in town. Go, look, there won't be more than one of them, I guarantee it. And then the angel is joined by this huge choir of angels, and they start praising God. That was their response to the good news. They celebrate this message of incarnation. And they say all the glory goes to God. And they indicate that peace has come. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6 explains that Jesus, as well as being Savior and Christ and Lord, he's the Prince of Peace. And so verse 14 tells us that peace is now going to be available to those with whom God is pleased. So this good news of great joy, it's not going to benefit everyone, only those with whom God is pleased. Who is that? We need to know. Who is God pleased with? We're going to see not everyone professes a worldview that pleases God or offers great joy. But the angels indicate that the peace of knowing Jesus will be for those people that God calls to himself. Those people that profess faith in this little baby who was born in Bethlehem. Faith is what pleases God. Okay, let's look at verses 15 to 20. Luke continues. He says, When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, and I hope we're trying to imagine what that scene must have looked like. I I have a hard time. The shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then. See, they got the angels' hint. Let us go and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry, and they found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they'd seen this, they made known the statement which had been made known to them about this child. They go and share the good news of great joy statement. The text says, And all who heard it wondered the things which were told them by the shepherd. Now, that, that's the question they got to be asking. Here's a little baby laying in a manger. How? How is this good news of great joy that's going to be available for all the people? But look at Mary's response in verse 19. Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all that they'd heard and seen just as had been told them. So the shepherds go and they see Jesus because they believe the angel's message. And they give credit where credit is due. They indicate that this message ultimately came from God through the angels. And that's pretty impressive reasoning from these shepherds. And so they go and they see Jesus as a baby and they become missionaries. Now they start proclaiming this message of good news Great joy because of this little baby in the manger who is the Prince of Peace and our Savior, Christ the Lord. And the text says they're sharing this message and the people they told were a little skeptical. 
they wondered about this. Because honestly, it's a pretty unbelievable message at face value, isn't it? This little baby's born, going to be the hope of the world. That would be a hard message to hear from somebody on the most trusted profession list. And they're hearing it from these shepherds. But did you see Mary contemplates the message? She's pondering it. She's engaging with it. This is nothing new to her. She's had an angel show up to her and deliver a message. And so she's all in. She's engaged. And the shepherds then go do what the angels did in response to this good news. They celebrate. They go back to the field and they have a party. They are actively glorifying and praising God. Last verse, verse 21. When eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus. That was the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So Mary and Joseph are obedient to this instruction from the angel that we saw in Luke chapter 1 and verse 31, that before Jesus was even conceived, an angel told Mary what to name her child. And so they named the baby Jesus, which means literally the Lord saves. So that's the Christmas story, right? We've heard that before. We know it. And when we're deep in the middle, you know, of our warm fuzzies on December 25th, we acknowledge that Jesus was born as a baby. We acknowledge that he was born to a virgin. We acknowledge it was in the old little town of Bethlehem. But do we stop and ponder, what does that mean? What does that message mean? Or do we go open some more presents and get some more eggnog? Do we really deal with it? The angel's message, which becomes the shepherd's message, was that God becoming man is truly good news of great joy, and it's able to benefit all the people, men and women, rich and poor, Jew and Gentile, most trusted and least trusted. And so practically, we ask the question, does that news really benefit all people? Do all people experience great joy because of the birth of Jesus Christ? And practically, we know the answer to that. Then we've got to ask, why not? This is a great Christmas analogy. Because if someone walks up to you with a gift, even if it's somebody you don't know, even if it's somebody you'd be terribly frightened of, like the shepherds were of the angels, but if they come up to you and say, hey, I got this gift, and I want to give it to you, it's going to bring you great joy. What do you have to do to receive the great joy? You've got to open the gift. I'm not going to open this because this is actually Macy's gift for her birthday next week. But I'll set that back down. But to truly receive the joy, that's what you've got to do. You've got to open it. And I think what happens so often, and, and I know, sadly, Christ followers are guilty of this too. We have the opportunity to open this great gift, and we leave it, and we go looking around for joy other places. We go looking for happiness in this world. We crave the warm fuzzies, and so we go looking to created things instead of looking to the Creator. We're looking in the wrong place for joy. I mean, I hate to be the one to burst your bubble on this, but it's not going to happen. Our circumstances on this earth are not going to lead us to joy because joy comes from the Lord. So I want us to look at something together. Turn back with me to the First Testament book of Isaiah, the Old Testament. 
Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, then Isaiah, then Jeremiah. Turn to Isaiah chapter 8 and 9 and keep your finger there. Isaiah chapter 9 is another passage that gets some play come Christmas time. We normally read it in December. I referenced it earlier. This is where we learn that Jesus is coming and he will be wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the eternal Father, the Prince of Peace. But let's take a look at what precedes that prophecy. Let's take a look at Isaiah chapter 8, verses 21 and 22. Because Isaiah chapter 9 starts with a tiny little word, great word, but. Some translations use nevertheless. really doesn't matter. The idea is that what we're going to read in chapter 9, it's a response to something that came before it. Chapter 9 gives this wonderful promise that Jesus is coming. God is coming as a child. It says as a son. But what's the context for that promise? Look at Isaiah 8, verses 21 and 22. We'll have this on the screen as well. Isaiah shares, they, this is God's people, they will pass through the land hard-pressed and famished. And it will turn out that when they're hungry, they will be enraged and they'll curse their king and then their God as they face upward. And then, this is sad, then they'll look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they'll be driven away into darkness. Does that sound like great joy? God's people go through a lot in the Old Testament. Honestly, they do. And so much of it is they experience tons of consequences for being goofy and disobedient. And God always takes action. And sometimes he is so patient. It seems like it takes so long, but he never lets them off the hook for their disobedience because he loves them. And he wants the best for them. And he always preserves at least a remnant of his people because he has a plan for them. And he's made promises to them that will literally be fulfilled in the future. But these people, here in Isaiah 8, they're crushed and brokenhearted and devastated and whatever other word you can come up with that's the opposite of joy because they look at the world around them and it's a hot mess, right? It's broken and fallen. The world's a fallen place. It's not intended to provide lasting joy. Because why? We said joy comes from the Lord. We can look around the world today and we see too many horrific acts of violence and depravity and corruption and greed and war and disease and we worry about the Ebola virus. The world is a tough place. Let me ask you this. Do you think it was different back in the day? 700 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah is writing about God's people, and he says they are face-to-face with the darkness and brokenness of this world. And so what do they do? They curse their political leader, and then they curse God, and then it gets worse. Verse 22 says they reject him. They reject God. They give up on God, and it says they turn and they look to the earth. For answers. They start to look for happiness. They want to find joy. They're tired of the system of waiting on God, and so they want to try something else. Verse 22 says, no, that's only going to make things worse. Distress and darkness and anguish, and people are driven into it. 
You know, there's a part that gets written out of all the children's Christmas pageants. It's like the part that gets laughed out when we tell the story of Noah and the ark. We're so tickled for all the boy and girl animals going on the boat. We love that. We love the eight people who make it on the boat. That's fantastic. We forget sometimes about the people who would have been running to the boat when they felt the first ever raindrops and the water starts to rise and they get to the boat and they start beating on it and they're screaming, let me in! They're left to deal with the consequences of their poor choice to not believe in the God of the impossible. And you know Noah was going around trying to give them a gift from God and they wouldn't open it. Matthew's Gospel describes the evil and depravity of a guy named Herod. Herod wanted to kill Jesus. So to try and accomplish his plan, he had all the boy babies who were two years old and under in that Bethlehem region killed. We leave that part out because it's hard sometimes to see how God works all things together for good. And at Christmas, we like the warm and the fuzzy parts. Commentators, theologians who estimate the population of the Bethlehem region, and then do the math, say at that time it was probably about 20 little babies that were killed that would have been two and under. What do we do? What do we think about when we hear about evil like that? Almost two years ago, right before we celebrated Christmas, December 14th, 2012, lone gunman walked into Sandy Hook Elementary School and he killed 20 kids, most of them first graders. And he killed some teachers. He killed himself. We don't know how to process something like that. And so it has led to tons of conversations. Should we have less guns? Should we have more guns? Should we have armed security at all the schools? Should we ban violent video games? And and hear me, some of those debates can be worthwhile But they can become exercises and look into the earth for answers. And there's no real joy looking there. When bad things happen, when there's evil, when there's depravity, like there was for God's people in Isaiah 8, like there is for people today, are we going to look to the earth for answers? Where's the message of hope there? Where's the peace there? Where's the great joy there? We truly want to know. But we look and we end up cursing our leaders. We end up cursing God. And we end up adopting these different worldviews. Now your worldview, it's it's just the lens through which we view our lives. Your worldview is a way of perceiving reality and identifying purpose in our lives. And in Luke chapter 2, The angel came and delivered this message of good news that leads to great joy. And the shepherds repeated this message of hope and peace and joy. And it comes in hearing and responding to the reality that a Savior has been born. So let's get together on that one and call that the Christian worldview. But not everybody chooses that worldview. Some people choose atheism. Atheism, it's, it's the belief, it's the view that there is no God. We come from nowhere, we're going nowhere, there's no purpose. Richard Dawkins is an atheist, kind of has become the spokesperson 
for atheism. And he was once asked in an interview, doesn't your worldview, doesn't atheism lead you to be depressed? And Dawkins answered the only way you could answer if this is what you believe. He said, I don't feel depressed about it, but if somebody else does, that's their problem. I mean, that's cold. But he continued, he said, maybe the logic behind it, behind the atheistic worldview, he says, maybe it's deeply pessimistic. Maybe? He said, but the universe is cold and bleak and empty, but so what? But so what? That's the view that Dawkins espouses. Can we be honest? That's a ridiculous worldview. The interviewer asked a good question. How does that not lead to depression? So there's, there's other options. We could be deists. Deists believe there's a God. They believe he made the world. And then he looked around and saw how bad it was and left. He checked out. Deists believe that God is far, far away and you're on your own. Good luck. All the brokenness that you see around us, try and find some joy in that. No peace, no hope. Some people adopt something called pantheism. And I think people who who buy into this are more correctly espousing panantheism as their worldview. God is everything, is pantheism. But even those folks begin to realize that's goofy because then you've got to say God is a rock. God is this shirt. God is this music stand. It's foolish. So they kind of morph their view into this thing called panantheism. Everything is not God, but God is in everything. So God becomes like the force in Star Wars. The force is strong with this one. We we have the force in us. Our folks can be theists. Now this one may sound better by definition because theism means you believe there's a God, but hear me on this. This may be the most dangerous, incorrect worldview because this worldview leads to religion. Religious people think they're good. They think I'm covered because I'm religious. But here's the difference between being religious and having a relationship with God. There's a big difference between theism and Christianity. And it's this. Religious people try to save themselves. They probably won't say it like that. But adopting a worldview like that links salvation to something like, okay, I've got to pray five times a day kneeling and facing in a certain direction. I've got to be baptized a certain way. I've got to obey all the Jewish laws. And for theists, what you're saying is you become your own savior. Ultimately, you have to save yourself. So you better try harder, and you better do better because you have to be good enough so that you can earn having God save you. Theism is a dangerous worldview. Listen to me. Every worldview other than Christianity is dangerous. Here's what the Christian worldview is. It's not a religion. It's the truth. God is the creator, and he created us to be with us. But Adam and Eve chose death over life. And so sin entered the world. And now we choose lies over the truth. We trade intimacy with God for hiding from God. Because of sin, now creation was affected, and and so we can't look to this world for hope and answers. This world is a dark and broken and fallen place, just like Isaiah described in chapter 8. 
just like Herod in Matthew chapter 2, just like we see from Sandy Hook a couple years ago. But unlike atheism, where there's no purpose, unlike deism, where God created the world and then left because it's so horrible, if we subscribe to this Christian worldview and you understand there's good news, God was willing to die in our place for my sins, and he's powerful enough to conquer sin and death, and he did so, why? In order to reconcile us with God so we can have a relationship. And he wants that relationship so much that he entered the world. The creator entered creation. God came down to be with us so we don't have to ascend to be with him. He wants to be with us. And all those faulty worldviews have one thing in common for sure. God is not the Savior in their view. In theism, you have to save yourself. All the other views, they don't even have a Savior. In following Jesus, you understand, we have a Savior. Jesus is the rescuer. He's the redeemer. He's the reason we have hope. He's the reason there's great joy. I don't know about you. That sounds like really good news to me. Did you keep your finger there in Isaiah? Let me wrap this up. Look, look back at Isaiah chapter 9, the very first part of verse 1. It's where Isaiah says, but, and he's saying, remember, in chapter 8, God's people rejected God, and they looked to the earth, to other worldviews for purpose and hope. And Isaiah is saying, now there will be no more gloom for her who is in anguish. Isaiah is saying, we don't have to live that way. Even though because of sin, this world is full of suffering and evil. The message of chapter 8 is that the world around us is broken. The more we look to it for answers, the worse it gets. But I love this next verse. Because this is what we celebrate at Christmas. This is the picture of good news that can be great joy for all those who follow Christ. Look at Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. The people who walk in darkness... will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. In addition to being our Savior, our Lord, the Prince of Peace, we know that Jesus describes himself this way in John chapter 8 and verse 12. I'm the light of the world. He who follows me, if we accept this Christian worldview, if we accept the good news, if we open it, and receive this great joy. It says we will not walk in darkness, but we'll have the light of life. And these folks in Isaiah chapter 9 who see the great light, they didn't strike a match. They didn't ignite it. They didn't generate the light. They can't make the light themselves. They just observe it. They discover it, which for sure means the light doesn't come from them. We can't create this kind of light. It doesn't originate in this fallen world. The world can't illuminate himself. This is why the message of the gospel is good news. It's why it can create 
great joy because there can be hope. There can be peace. There can be joy even in this broken world because the light came. Because God came. That's the message of Christmas. That's the meaning of incarnation. God came to be with us, to save us. Every other worldview leads to despair or trying to make your own light or your own joy. That's why the message from the angel to the shepherds about the birth of Jesus is such good news. And I, I want to remind us, I want to tell us, it's available. It brings great joy, and it's available to everybody who places their faith in Jesus. Let's close our time together today by taking communion. Lord's Supper's kind of like celebrating Christmas on at least one front. I think we can take part in it and miss the true meaning. I talked to somebody a couple weeks ago, and they said they were struggling so much in their personal life they didn't even take communion. <laughs> I said, no, that's not it. We celebrate the Lord's Supper because we aren't good enough to save ourselves. When we take communion, we're supposed to examine our hearts and confess our sins and be right with God. We're supposed to remember why the good news is so good. Because God became man. And he made the way for sinful, broken people to be reconciled with a perfect and holy God. Christ's sacrifice on the cross is what we remember when we take communion. So Jeff and praise team's going to come. They're going to play some music. And here's what's going to happen. We'll have some response time to do just that, to talk with God, to respond to him, to be with him. And then when you're ready, the elements are on the tables in the room all around you. If you're here for one of the first times or you're a guest and you've never taken communion with us, then, then understand Anybody who subscribes to this Christian worldview, this is for you. This is an ordinance of the Lord to be with him. And so we'll close our time together by singing, and then Dan's going to come and, and make a few announcements. But please, please do this for me. As we, as we spend this time together, ponder the statement from the angel of the Lord in Luke chapter 2, verse 10 and 11 the message that the shepherds went on to share, that God became incarnate. Jesus was born as a baby to be with us, to be our Savior, and for everyone who puts their faith in him, there's great joy. That's the heart of the gospel message. When we view that correctly, when we respond with belief and trust, then we're going to be able to see that there's great joy imaginable. There's light even in the midst of our trials. Joy is available to all people. Everyone that God draws to himself. We saw here the, the outcasts, like the shepherds. They can become honored guests with Jesus. When we understand the true meaning of the Christmas story, when we respond to the news that a Savior was born as a baby in a manger, and we respond with faith, that's what pleases God. We can have joy in this life, in the midst of this fallen world. Pray with me. Daddy, thank you. Thank you for the Christmas story. Thank you for the opportunity to be here together and to study. And God, thank you so much 
for your plan to send your son to be with us, Emmanuel. God, help us to understand that's where the hope is. That's where the joy is. That's where the peace is. That's where the life is. We know we live in a fallen world. We know we're fallen people. God, help us to not turn and look to created things for joy that it can't give. God, help us to look to you. And I pray if there are folks here today who don't know you, they would hear clearly the message at Christmas is that we need to know you. You want to be in a relationship with us, and it's not a relationship we have to earn. You came to be with us. Help us to respond in such a way we're going to put our faith and our trust in you. Draw people to yourself, God. That's what you do. God, we pray for the bread and the cup, the opportunity to remember your son's sacrifice. We ask all those things in Jesus' name. Amen.